Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Let's go back in time a little. Let's not talk about 2020 for a second. Let's talk about 2017. I don't know how things were for you in 2017, but in 2017, the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren had a terrible year, truly awful. And it inspired a beautiful book, which has just come out from InterVarsity Press. The book is called Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. For those of you who have ever prayed Compline, that may sound familiar. The book takes up the subjects of pain and grief in all their opaqueness, their inexplicability, their dailiness, and our vulnerability in the face of pain and grief. And it also takes up the way that pain can shut down the very thing that we seem to need most in the face of pain, which is prayer and a sense of the presence of God. And yet, it's also a book about what Tish calls, in the interview you'll hear today, average suffering and common heartache. It's not about the pandemic. It's also not a memoir. It's about the things most, if not all of us, will go through in our lifetimes, whatever the state of the world around us. The loss of people that we love, loneliness, tragedies of mortality that don't space themselves out politely or conveniently, but come in quick succession. And it's a book shaped around the practice of Compline, as you might have guessed. How do the prayers of Compline face and pray through the darkness and dangers of the night? Tish joins us today to talk about her book and about her story. She is a priest in the Anglican Church in North America, and along with Prayer in the Night, she's the author of Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, which was Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year. She has worked in a variety of ministries as a campus minister and associate rector in ministries to those in addiction and poverty, and has most recently served as writer-in-residence at Church of the Ascension in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
She's a monthly columnist with Christianity Today, and her articles and essays have appeared in many places, including the New York Times. She's interviewed here by her friend and Pittsburgh neighbor, the Reverend Dr. Wesley Hill, Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity School for Ministry. There's a moment in their conversation when Tish says, each of us will have to meet God in grief. You know, none of us know what this year will hold. We really don't. But we might do well to consider what grieving and healing may start to look like. How do we begin dealing with what's happened? How do we bring it to God in prayer? On the scale of our nations and communities, certainly, but also on the scale of our bodies and souls. If you enjoy this conversation and you want to check out Tish's book when it's done, you can easily find it on InterVarsity's website or however you Google your books, or you can click on the link in our show notes. Tish, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this book. I think it's a, a beautiful book and a, a really profound book and probably a timelier book than you even realized as you were working on it. I know. It, it's The timing is crazy. I mean, it's a book about grief and about nighttime and suffering and, and doubt. And um, it brings up themes like sickness and mortality and I just, I wrote this mostly in 2018, 2019. It could absolutely have never predicted. It was actually mostly written in 2018. So yeah, could never have predicted that, you know, two years later when it came out, um, these subjects would be so in our face, right? Sickness and mortality and grief right. is something so many folks are right. walking through, but yeah. The timing is crazy. Well, I think it's a, it's a providential timing. It's a gift to the church in this time as we're trying to figure out how to mourn and grieve and, and also live in hope. So thanks. Um, you know, your first book, uh, I think, captivated a lot of people because it, it, it brought a lot of meaty reflection on the Christian life, but it was couched in sort of memoirish terms. You're, you're open about your life and, and stories from your marriage and your parenting. And this book is similar. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the particular circumstances uh, that prompted you to start writing this and um, just share about that harrowing year that you had? Yeah. So the book picks up in 2017, um, which was the year I moved from... Um, I moved that January, so almost it was exactly four years ago, from Austin, Texas, which is my hometown, to Pittsburgh, um, where we both live now, or we live close at least to Pittsburgh. And um, and I moved here, um, which in and of itself, I mean, a cross country move is hard. There's a lot of loneliness um, going from you know sunny sixty degree Austin, Texas, to like right. the dark cold of of Pittsburgh, January. Um, and it is very dark. It is. It's gloomy. I mean, you just don't see much of the sun. Um, although today is a sunny day, but it's rare to have that in, in um, right. the winter. 
And then a week later, my father back in Texas and it um, suddenly passed away. And uh, then I actually, I had a ticket home for his birthday. Um, Even though we were just getting here, I wanted to go back and see him for his birthday. And um, I used that ticket to go home for his funeral and spoke at his funeral, um, which actually was on his birthday. And uh, the next day I found out I was pregnant to our surprise and great joy. And then um, three weeks later, we miscarried with quite dramatically and had some pretty serious health complications, which is where the book begins is in the emergency room dealing with all of that. And then, um, and then we got pregnant again um, and had a, a difficult pregnancy. I had, it was a complicated pregnancy throughout. And um, in the second trimester, which was that July, we lost um, a son, a little boy to, to miscarriage. So uh, it was two miscarriages and um, the death of my dad and a cross country move. It was a lonely, hard um, year, not an I mean, I point this out because the book isn't exactly, the book is not about catastrophic tragedy. In fact, one of the things I had um, at the beginning, I I didn't want to write the book because I thought, well, my life has been too good to write about grief and suffering. This is sort of ordinary, this is average suffering. Granted, a lot of it sort of happened at the same time, but these are things that a lot of people go through, right? And uh, it's kind of a common common heartache and common suffering. But uh, that actually became an intriguing idea to me about writing the book, that that grief and loss isn't the kind of special property of those who have faced untold tragedy. Grief and suffering is ordinary. It's part of all of our lives. And so because it's part of all of our lives, it's a, it's a something that each and every one of us kind of needs to face up to and ask, where is God in the midst of the particular grief that we experience in life? Because each of us will have those, each of us will have to meet God in grief. Right. One one of my parts of the book that I was drawn to uh, is probably because like you, uh, I Grew up in the South uh, with a kind of Christianity and Stoicism uh, culture that you quote Walker Percy uh, talking about, and it's this idea that you know you don't you don't we shouldn't really talk about our griefs. We we should sort of uh, keep those hidden away, uh, put a, put a brave face on things. And and you write about giving yourself permission to grieve, and like you say, not not in some not necessarily over some catastrophic loss or dramatic uh, disruption, but over the the quotidian griefs that kind of wend their way through all of our lives. Um, I thought that was very powerful. Thanks. Yeah. That, um, that kind of insight is what gave, gave me permission to write the book, I think. Um, so the Percy quote you mentioned, uh, is this great, um, it's from this great Percy essay where he says that Christianity in the South is actually kind of a syncretism. It's a syncretistic religion, different religion that is, that's a mix between Christianity and Stoicism. Right. And so the idea of kind of, we just 
keep your expectations really low. <laughs> I don't want to, don't really want much or too much and, um, and sort of grin and bear life um, is something I grew up in. I think a lot of us grew up in um, maybe particularly in the South, but I think sort of broadly in, um, in the American, in the American church. Yeah. In the American church, a lot of us have, have that kind of syncretism between stoicism and Christianity. Yeah. yeah I remember hearing the the poet and writer Mary Carr uh, giving an interview one time and, and she was talking about this um, best-selling memoir uh, that was on Oprah's book club and all this. And it, it turned out later that the writer had uh, manufactured a lot of his story. He hadn't actually gone through some of the dramatic things that he describes in his memoir. And it caused this big cultural conversation about memoir. Yeah, I, I remember, remember that. I remember Mary Carr saying, the tragedy of that is that every single one of us, simply by being human in this fallen world, have endured the torments of the damned. Like mm-hmm. we don't actually have to make anything up to find mm-hmm. uh, to find uh, grief uh, in life. It, it's going to find all of us. And I think your book is very helpful in, in just highlighting that and, and leading us into that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think in general, in American culture, I I don't think this is just Christianity. I actually, I quote in the book, this poem um, by Mary Allerton, a Puritan that says, there is no time for grief. There is no time. There's only time for labor in the cold. This is, is, she wrote the beginning, those lines um, after the stillborn, she, she had a stillborn child. Those are some of the first lines written in English on American soil. So this idea of there's no time to grief, we have to keep going, we have to keep laboring, we have to keep pressing on. And um, and I say in the book, I was sitting in my church office and 400 years later was sitting with a woman who was grieving something in her own family. And she said almost the same words. She said, you know, there's not time for grief. I have to keep working. I have to keep going forward. And I thought, here's two women 400 years apart speaking almost the exact same words. She almost quoted her. And it's the same idea of we can't slow, we can't stop. We can't feel this. And then and by the way, Mary Mary Carr, who you quoted, is one of my very favorites. Oh, great. She's in like my um, lit is in my top great ten book. favorite yeah. books, and um, I love her so much. And uh, also from the South, by the way, from Texas. Um, and, right. Yeah. I, and from I, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but would certainly have I been from this culture of sort of suck it up, don't talk about your grief, don't. Um, and I think it, we are taught to minimize our grief. I think we're taught, I mean, everything in me when I say I'm upset or about something feels I always have to hedge it, feels I always have to sort of say, well, I know it's, you know, not that bad. And and there's something true to that, right? Like, I don't think it's good to over-exaggerate our, our loss um, or, um, so, I mean, certainly not embellish our loss, but but I also think there is this I, I well to be honest i i worry about this on um on twitter and with um kind of uh calling people out for their privilege um i mean i absolutely believe in privilege and white privilege and that and um the notion that that um suffering isn't like distributed evenly <laughs> i mean that's just self evident and yet i think that and and I absolutely believe I am privileged. I mean, I 
have an education. I have parents who love me. I, I am, am a white American. So, but um, I think there's also this really common, like, uh, the fact that we all die, the fact that we all suffer a lot of loss before we die, the fact that we can't control the world, we can't control our bodies and what they do. We can't um, we can't make ourselves well when we're sick. Like these are things that are that bind us together um, as humans. That I I don't want to miss um, as we're sort of comparing grief, uh, either lessening our grief because it's not what others are, or lessening other people's grief, belittling them because of their own power and privilege. I think um, there is a common humanity that I'm trying to kind of um, call out through this book without denying, and and I say this in the chapter on on affliction, that some folks just have it harder than others. And that's absolutely true. And I think that's right. It's, it's, it's only living in reality to, to admit how blessed and, and healthy and safe we are. And yet, um, we also have to admit the reality of the fact that even in the midst of all of that, we will experience profound sorrow in this life and um, that every single person you know will experience profound sorrow in this life. This episode is sponsored in part by Neshota House Theological Seminary. The 2021 summer term at Neshota House will be an incomparable experience. Visit neshota.edu forward slash summer to see a truly incredible lineup of courses. They hope that you'll join them to work, study, pray, and live together on their serene, historic lakeside campus. To study at Neshota House is to become a member of something bigger than yourself. Partner with them to empower the church and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, that's neshoda.edu forward slash summer. What are you going to do for Lent this year? That's a question I always struggle with, usually until the last minute. This year, maybe make that a little easier on yourself. We invite you to join a free online four-session course called Grace in the Wilderness. In it, we will explore the Lenten disciplines in depth. It'll be a great time of learning and discussion. And of course, there is some hands-on homework as well. Topics will include fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. It's a great way to learn and practice Lent this year. The event is at no cost to you, and it is hosted by the School of Faith and Leadership in the Diocese of Washington and co-hosted by the Living Church Institute. Go to eventbrite.com and search Grace in the Wilderness or click on the link in the show notes. Well, Tish, you're an Anglican priest, and as this book uh, gets underway, it becomes clear that the book is structured around a particular prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, Can you talk about that, uh, that reality of of reaching for Compline, the service of Compline, and coming to this particular prayer and how that sort of shaped the way you went about your your work in this book? Yeah, so um, that was somewhat biographical. I mean, the book is not a memoir. I just want to tell listeners that so they're not expecting it to be a memoir. It just has kind of memoirish elements and it. it has parts of my story in it. And so the way that 
the book came to be structured around this prayer is somewhat out of my own story, um, which was that in the middle of this in 2017, night became really hard for me. I would stay busy during the day, um, even sometimes busier than I wanted to be because I have children. Um, and then at night, when everything kind of slowed down, um, that emptiness, the empty hours of that really amplified all of it in the sense of loneliness. I had anxiety at night in a new way that I hadn't had in my adult life. Uh, I had, and grief would come up. I mean, I would, I would very simply put, I would start feeling bad feelings I didn't want to feel. And I would start at times sort of tearing up. And so I went to numbing things. I mean, I went to Netflix and lots of political commentary online. This was 2017. We had a new president. So there was a lot of talk about Trump. Um, and um, what the kids call doom scrolling, where you just kind of <laughs> let the... It's a very useful term, that Yeah. Let the horrors... I mean, where you just kind of lurk and don't even talk on Twitter and just let right. the horrors of the internet kind of wash over you like waves. This is... And then I would sort of collapse in a very fitful sleep, you know, keeping myself occupied to the second that, you know, I couldn't anymore. And so really through a counselor um, here, she challenged me to just let nights be a little bit more open to let myself feel these things. She didn't even say like, you need to sit and have a deep spiritual experience. She actually right. said, get a glass of wine, like take a bath, like just, yeah. just get, get in your body away from yeah. just trying to distract, distract, distract. And, um, I like couldn't do it. I mean, I, I like just kept falling off the wagon. Like I just kept like nights, just, I just had really deep habits of, of avoiding all of the things mm. I was feeling. And, mm. uh, and so, and, and <laughs> this is totally side note because I'm talking to you. Um, but in Austin, things are, oh, I could go to coffee shops at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. Things are open all night, yeah. but the, where we were here, things close yes. at like eight. And so there were these hours of the night yes. that I could not <laughs> avoid. And, um, and so, uh, so on certain nights, I, I started coming back to Compline, which is is a nighttime Anglican prayer office. It's the last prayers of the day. And um, I had prayed it on and off throughout the years. I'd gone to some sung choral Compline services, um, but it and it was important to me. Um, but I know it wasn't a conscious. I don't think I consciously adopted it as a practice. Um, but but I had done it, you know, and what I sort of one of the things I found during this is when I wrote Liturgy of the Ordinary about our habits and practices of life that came out Jan December of 2016. All of this happened January 2017. So it felt like I wrote a book about the ordinary and then yeah. the ordinary flew out the window. There was nothing ordinary. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to me that the habits that I had developed for good or for ill, like good and bad, were kind of the things that um, came back up again when everything yeah. else sort of my routine, because we started a new job, we moved to a new place, all of the routines were thrown out the window. 
and the things that um, came up uh, for me were, were sort of the habits and practices that I had developed, um, both of, you know, being on Twitter and, but also eventually coming back to this practice of Compline. So I just, uh, I, I talk in the book about, I struggled a lot to pray, felt like I was a priest that couldn't pray, which is um, not great for that gig at all, but it's, <laughs> it's but I, um, it's kind of our job, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, it just felt like there were too many unanswered questions, unanswerable questions. I didn't know how to enter into prayer. And, and I'm good enough with words that I could sort of conjure up things to say, but I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't able to talk to God in, in a way that my soul really needed and longed for. And prayer is often a time of just sort of frustration and um, having these prayers from the church that felt like, okay, when you can't pray, here's some here's some things to pray. Here's some words. Here's a script right. even Right. Um, was so helpful, but I needed something like that, that really, really acknowledged darkness that really acknowledged death. I needed, I needed prayers of the church that really held together that God is trustworthy, but that life is hard at the same time. I needed mm. both uh, because anything that felt too kind of put together, shiny, just felt untrue. Um, so, right. so these, because Compline is at night and night is um, just innately such a vulnerable time, but particularly, particularly for, you know, centuries and centuries without electricity when, Night times were real times of danger and peril. Um, Compline, you feel it, and I feel it in the service itself. This sense of vulnerability and and danger and mortality, um, and we, um, you know, we we quote the servant. Now your servant can depart in peace. Mm-hmm. That, the song of Simeon. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, he, we, we are talking about sleep when we say that, but he was talking about death, yeah. right? And yeah. so we see uh, over and over throughout Compline, there's a sort of interplay between death and sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, awake, may, may we watch with Christ. Asleep, right. may we rest in peace. Um, right. So uh, this sort of death and human vulnerability, it looms large. And yet it's this call to prayer, right? And that right. is exactly what I needed at the time is someone saying, you're not crazy. The world is a difficult and scary place. And here's some things to pray in the midst of that. And so one prayer in particular, the keep watch, dear Lord prayer, um, it keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep. And it, and it, it goes on. I could say the whole mm. prayer, but that prayer, um, it just was beautiful. I, I mm. thought it was beautiful and I would pray it, um, frequently and even outside of Compline. And so, um, so I center the book as a meditation around each line of that prayer. Mm. Um, and I did that because the prayer itself was really important to me. So I wanted to sort of 
get spend more time with it. I wanted to yeah. meditate on it. But yeah. also because there were these big questions that I wanted to get into in the book that I was wrestling with, which was all about sort of how do you trust God? Mm. If you can't mm. trust God to keep bad things from happening, how do you how do you trust God at all? Where is God in the midst of sickness? Where is God in the midst of death? I had I had these kind of questions but they were too big. I didn't, I didn't really know how to start when you're writing that you identify with this since you're a writer too, you kind of need an, a, a way in a door yeah. into the bigger questions. And it felt to me like this prayer became like a guideline for a scuba diver or something like, have you like, you know, scuba divers, um, have, they call it a distancing line or a guideline that they connect um, to uh, a place closer to the surface and they can go into these deep, dark places right, right. because they're tethered to that, because they're holding on to it. And and so they can safely go there and then get back up to the surface. And it felt like that to me. It felt like this prayer was a way into these larger questions. So so I end up using the using that prayer as a way to to sort of explore these ideas of the odyssey vulnerability and how do we trust God? And um, yeah. And, and the prayer sort of presented like the, the prayer presented that, but it also made me think about things I wouldn't have. Like I certainly probably, I mean, left on my own, I don't think I would have, I would have written about joy in this book yeah. or that joy yeah. itself is a place of vulnerability. I don't think I would have gotten there unless mm. I was, um, really like over years working with and meditating on this prayer. Mm -hmm. As I was reading your book, I found myself thinking back to uh, several years ago, I read uh, a, a really harrowing book and a beautiful book called Darkness is My Only Companion by Catherine Green McCright, who's also uh, an Anglican priest. Yes. And uh, she, she writes about her experience of uh, bipolar disorder and she says, there were times, you know, in the worst moments of, of dealing with some of my crises, that the only thing I could do was strap myself to the prayers of Israel and the church, mm -hmm. you know, the Psalms and the prayer book. And I found myself thinking of that image of, of just sort of, you feel that you're careening out of control. And these, these ancient words can be a kind of ballast. Uh, they, they can be something that um, keeps you standing in the night. And I, I think your book is, you know, I, I, I was reading one review of, of the book. There, there've been only a few that have come out so far. The book is still pretty new as we're recording this, but one reviewer, um, pointed out that this is book, this is less a book about liturgy. It's less a book trying to convince you of something about liturgy or, or teach you something about it. And it's much more a kind of demonstration of what a life shaped by these prayers looks like. And I, I think that's one of the real gifts of it. Mm, yeah. I I don't know what review that is, but I like that and I agree with it. In general, I hope that's true of my writing, but specifically about this book, I didn't really want it to be a how to pray Compline book. There's nothing mm. wrong with that. Sure. But and I don't know if I should say this out loud, but it <laughs> but I'm going to like <laughs> part of this is like if someone reads my book and at the end of it they don't do Compline, like, I don't really care. Like yeah, I, it's, yeah. I'm not trying to it's get. It's not an people. apologia for the book of common no, prayer. Or yeah, it's not. Um, I, I think I, if, if someone would, 
I mean, I hope it does challenge people or dare people to experiment with different kinds of prayer that they don't haven't done, um, because I think that's just generally important in the Christian life. But, um, you know, Compline's not going to be the thing. In other words, it's not it's that what saved me in, the, in this at the end of the day wasn't Compline itself. Yeah. Right. It yeah. was a, a way back into the story and the practices of the church. And for me that the way back was through these prayers, but yeah, I hope, I mean, I hope that in general, my writing shows more than tells and that Mm. it shows folks kind of how I've been shaped by this stuff um, and how God has met me in the midst of this. And, and then readers can sort of form their own imaginations of, of ways God have has worked and met them as opposed to sort of, here's, you know, the f- five steps to trusting God in darkness. Right. I mean, that's just not in, that's just, that's not the way I write. Cause I don't think that's real. I mean, I don't right. think there are five easy steps to trusting God in darkness. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, I was in the hospital. I start the very first, the preface of the book is I was in the hospital and said, and in the emergency room and said, Compline, like I need to, I need to pray Compline, which is very unusual for me, but it was absolutely this moment of, I have to pray and I can't pray. Like I'm too afraid. There's too much at stake. I don't know what to do. And so I need something just sort of washed over me. Like I want prayer. It's, it's absolute. I love the imagery uh, uh, that you said of McCrate of being strapped into this. I needed something like that. Um, But I was going to say, I, when I was thinking about this book, I mentioned that to you and you said, you should put that story in your book. (laughs) 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 And, uh, and I did, and I didn't know it would be the very opening story when I wrote it. It actually started not as an opening story. It was later. And then I moved it up. Um, because it was this example of, um, I mean, it would, it would just be insane, right? To be like, Compline is good. You should pray it and when you're in the emergency room, right? Like yeah. that because yeah. that doesn't even that's a that's a weird that was a weird moment and a weird practice. But it was this idea of sort of when everything else falls apart, like you just go back to the words you've learned. Like yes. you that that's what you've got. Yes. Well, Tish, I, I, I think for me, one of the the best blessings of this book. I, I, I want to encourage listeners. There, are, there are a lot of treasures here, and a lot of um, even just wonderful quotes you've dug up from other writers uh, that are that are really beautiful. Yay! Thank you for um, saying. I love the quotes in my book. <laughs> really, if you just took out all my words, it would still be worth it. Just for the but quotes. I think, you know, I think I think one of the hazards about writing books about the spiritual life is is they can become suffocating. It can quickly become kind of about. Uh, my own private sort of uh, agenda or or my uh, technique. And I think one of the things your book does kind of gently and over the course of, of how it unfolds is it directs us first and foremost to God. Uh, this is really a book about God uh, more than you. <laughs> and it's a book about a God who is trustworthy and faithful. And, um, you, you know, this prayer that we pray, this Compline service uh, right before we drift off to sleep, God doesn't go to sleep. God is still there. And um, yeah, I just, I want to thank you for the theocentricity of this book, which I think will be a ballast to a lot of us. 
Wow, thank you. I don't know what, how to respond to that other than that's really good. I appreciate that the book, I mean, I want the book to be Christocentric and theocentric. Well, Tish, thank you. This has been a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I hope our listeners will uh, be prompted to pick up the book. Um, it, I should say it's not only uh, wonderful to read, but it's it's beautifully produced by InterVarsity Press. Uh, it, it, would, it would make a lovely uh, addition to your coffee table or something like that. So, yeah, the um, cover is lovely. I can say that because I had nothing to do with it. it was, <laughs> that is beautiful. The cover yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Yes. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. Join us in two weeks when we take a deep look at the Church of England's new document, Living in Love and Faith, a groundbreaking project on marriage and sexuality. And we welcome the Reverend Dr. Andrew Goddard, who was a member of the Living in Faith and Love group, to help us unpack it. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.